You are listening to the Voices of Riverview, a podcast celebrating the life and times of New Brunswick's largest town as it celebrates 50 years. I'm your host, Tosh Taylor, a longtime Riverview admirer interested in learning more. Welcome to the show. Today we are chatting with Dr. Paul Bellavaux. Today we're here to talk to you about all of the amazing research that you've done and talk about um, your book, HMCS Coverdale, Riverview's Forgotten Naval Base. You are still, or you were, the second vice president of the Riverview Veterans and Armed Forces Association? I was at the time, At yes. the time, okay. Let's talk about where your interest in military history spawns from before we get talking about the, the base here in town. Okay, no problem. I guess since my father was in the Second World War and I was the oldest of seven children, but there was a long span between me and my and my first sibling, or Nick's sibling, he used to speak to me a lot about the Army. And as a matter of fact, he used to take me up to the rifle range when he was there because he was an officer, and I'd go in and shoot with the, with the soldiers at a very young age. And I'd go fishing with his... Uh, buddies who were in the army also so i grew up in other words just about being a military brat except i didn't live on a base after that i joined uh, air cadets and ended up getting a pilot's license mm. but then when i went to university i decided to join the what was called cotc which was a officer training for uh reserve officers and after that i spent um well, over a period of 35 years, I spent 23 of them in the reserves. The others were not in the Army because I was out of town either getting a Ph.D. or, or working in Ottawa or things of that nature. So I've had a lot of military experience, and I love it, and I started reading a lot of books about the uh, military. I was first inclined to read about the Civil War in the sta- in the States for some reason. Really? Or other. And I read a uh, multitude of books on that. Then I got into the Second World War. Again, a lot of time in that. Then I wrote a book on the First World War. And then I really, when I was writing the book on the First World War, it had to do with a unit from New Brunswick, the Kilties. And as a result, I started liking to do more research on the units in New Brunswick because very little has been written about them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been doing for the past, uh, since I retired. Okay. There are some pretty incredible soldiers that have, have made their way through this province. The other thing, too, which is very important for this area here is the fact that uh, the Second World War was loaded with blue uniforms here. We had more airmen in Moncton than we had population at times. Wow. There's, I just finished writing an article for the museum, uh, military museum in Gagetown, uh, on that particular aspect. That had to do with the fact that just before the war, at the beginning of the war, uh, the Commonwealth countries got together and created a training, air training system that they were going to train airmen to go to war, but train them in Canada. And Moncton became one of the biggest bases for that. So we, tr- well, at one time it was estimated that we, uh, over 100,000 uh, airmen passed through Moncton at one time or another because they were training air, air crews. So that's navigators, gunners, uh, f- 
pilots. But that's another story. It's a, but it is so interesting, too, because, uh, you know, you look at here we are in 2023 and you don't see the presence that much. Like you can drive up Von Harvey and you can you can see. I don't even know if you call that a base. Is it? No. no. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm not sure they call it a base okay. either anymore. <laughs> so you a, don't see the presence of it. So no. you don't realize the history that it has. We take Lakeburn. All of Lakeburn was a base. See, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was built because they were training the uh, flyers right there. Let's go to HMCS Let, covered. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Which is speaking of exactly that something that people don't realize was ever even there because now it's a beautiful nature park. Yeah, and it always was. You know, we talked in an earlier episode about Mill Creek and a little bit about HMCS and how they would use the woods there to go out and just get away from the base for a bit to go for an overnight camping or or when the top of the dam would freeze, there's talks that they used to skate on top of the dam. Um, So like Mill Creek has been used for many nature purposes for quite some time. (laughs) But most of the stuff you're talking about there happened after the war. Mm Mm-hmm because the base is in existence until 1971. Basically, my interest was, what did they do during the war? <laughs> yeah, which is also my interest because it is pretty incredible what was happening there. So let's, let's explain uh, to people what the base was built for and, and where it came from after that, because it did all start with the Wrens, correct? Uh, I gotta say yes and no. Okay. <laughs> it was decided at the beginning of the war to build a number of HF DF stations, which is high-frequency direction-finding stations, to identify submarines in the North Atlantic. And they went around trying to find locations in, well, from Quebec to the Maritime Provinces and also Newfoundland, which wasn't part of uh, uh, Canada at the time. And they did this, some of it in BC, but I don't know much about uh, the, the BC angle. Moncton, not Moncton, Riverview, actually Coverdale, was chosen as one of the bases because the area they used was actually a bog, great big bog. It was a farm, I can't remember the name of the individual who owned it. The armed forces bought the land and they built what was known as Coverdale. Uh, actually, it wasn't known as that. The first name it had was uh, Coverdale Special Wireless Station. That's what they, it was called. It was to use the uh, high frequency uh, in order to identify submarines in the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> now, what you did, what they did, was to build three shacks, which were a mile apart, with antennas and all sorts of wires at each one of these places. There was a main room where operators, and I'll go into that later on because that's where the wrens come in, Mm -hmm. operators would scan the radio waves at a specific frequency to identify submarines in the Atlantic because they surfaced once an hour to send a message out. It could have been uh, weather, it could have been current, situation could have been having spotted a ship or something but they only came up once an hour unless they were under attack and send out a message and they use a special code which only had four letters apparently but those were known by the allies as being submarine messages 
the operators, interceptors, would be listening, going from one frequency to the other until they found one of those. The moment they did find one, they marked down the frequency, and then they sent it to one of the shacks, or the three shacks, who would then go on that frequency and using the directional finding, find out exactly where it came from. Holy moly. So <laughs> there, all of a sudden, you had three intersecting lines, and they could identify where the location of the uh, ships were. Or no, I should say submarines, because they were only doing this for submarines here. That information was sent to Ottawa Intelligence, Naval Intelligence, and Naval Intelligence would send it to actually England or London, uh, England somewhere, I'm not sure where. And it was decided whether they should reroute uh, convoys or send, scramble some planes or ships to go after those submarines. That was the number one job that that base was supposed to do, or that station. Mm -hmm. Number two, I mentioned a few minutes ago about this big air thing that they had here, a total of 22 Air Force units were located here. Uh, they had a lot of student pilots. There were a lot of rescue operations oh. to be done. <laughs> <laughs> search and rescue. So they also did the search and rescue for uh, the Air Force uh, that was located at Moncton. Really? Now, going to the Wrens in spring... 1941, uh, the government decided they're going to bring women into the armed forces. They sent a message to the Army, Navy, and Air Force requesting them to come up with what roles they thought that, the, that women could play in the service. The Army and Air Force were quick to answer, <laughs> and all of a sudden you had some uh, CWAC, and you had the uh, uh, women's uh, division, women's division in the Navy, not Navy, Air Force. But the Navy took a bit longer. However, they finally managed to get in. They had approved 22 different trades for women to come in, and that was in the summer of 42. Most of them had to do with radio work, mm -hmm. let's put it that way, signals. Uh, Morse code, uh, cipher uh, training, technicians to maintain the equipment. And they did their training. They started hiring them. They did their training in Ontario, and then they'd be sending them to some of these bases that were being built. It was completed at the end of 1943. So January of 44, they brought in the Wrens to operate it. It had 150. Hmm. A uh, staff of 150 made up of 144 women and six men. Wow. Well, they had a, a motto, to free men for service afloat. That's <laughs> what it was. Anyhow, uh, it continued throughout uh, the war, and they were doing this. There's a few interesting points on that. There's the station in... Coverdale is the one the first station in the world to pick up the message that uh, Admiral Donitz, who was head of the German Navy, advising the Navy 
German Navy, <laughs> that Hitler was dead. Wow. They picked it up. They, were, they scooped it for the whole world. It came out a little after, later in the day or, or different days, that uh, Hitler was dead. But there, it was picked up here at Coverdale. Here? Yeah. Wow, that's something, eh? Yeah. Holy, <laughs> holy moly. <laughs> they also picked up another one that was telling the uh, uh, few boats who hadn't, uh, ships who hadn't given up to give up right away. And gave him a certain amount of time. That's after the war. Right. And they picked up that message also. Because with, when the weather was proper, conditions just right, they were actually picking up messages as far as the Baltic. Unbelievable. Yeah. Another one that's another interesting one is they picked up a message or a frequency and identified the location or the bearings for a boat or submarine in the uh, St. Lawrence River. And right away, naval intelligence send a scolding down to tell them to start doing the things properly. <laughs> but then they found out it was true. <laughs> they apologize for having scolded them. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine the celebration the day that, that it was picked up that Hitler had died? Yeah. The energy going through the place Actually, at that time. Actually, there's a number of articles written on this, and some of them come from people who served there that, when they got old like me, decided to write their story. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a couple of them who talks about the celebration they had uh, on the day that uh, they received that message. But they couldn't get going too much because it wasn't official yet and just in case that it was the wrong thing <laughs> or it was a fake of some sort. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's something you can imagine they could potentially be faking. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you want to make sure it's confirmed on all ends before celebrating too much. Well, they kept saying, we just relay. We don't interpret. <laughs> yeah. And I know nothing about Morse code, but translating Morse code in a different language, how would that? No, no, this wasn't Morse code. This okay. is radio waves okay. that they were sending. So they sending. could actually hear the... Yeah, okay. uh, but it was a code that only used four letters. I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. But the only people who used that code, although you couldn't decipher that code, as far as I know, they didn't know how to decipher that code. But they knew it was that code because it had four letters, four letters, four letters, four letters, and it was only the Navy who had it. Hmm. So the moment you could pick that up on a frequency, you knew you had a submarine. And the other thing I noticed is uh, from the moment the interceptor had uh, a frequency that they've located somebody somewhere and sent it to the shacks, the finders, the operators running the uh, for the bearing to try to find the bearing could do it as fast as 10 seconds see the three of them just concentrated on that one thing they had to go fast mm -hmm. because the message didn't last long <laughs> well that's exactly yeah. it. yeah you'd have to you'd have to be on yeah. it immediately yeah. and i imagine a high stress job well they had something like seven different shifts and you always had two shifts going at one time and that was uh, five or six operators sitting next to each other uh, 
we're trying to identify the frequency, and if they did, they send it to the supervisor who's on the other side of the wall, <laughs> who then send it to the shacks. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting, and it seems um, almost ahead of its time. But but yeah yeah, but not at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the same thing they were doing the same thing in uh, in England, and in other places too. But this one here. Uh, we were we yeah Coverdale was responsible for the north part of the North Atlantic, mm -hmm. but they weren't the only ones. There was two more in Nova Scotia, I believe, and there was one in Maine. And there was one in Gaspé. Interesting. And then so we find out that you know the war is then over. Yeah. What happens after? How quickly <laughs> do the wrens disperse and it and it becomes a year later. A year. Yeah, they got rid of all of or, or the stopped using rents. They were all retired. Right. In 1946. I think it's August 46. However, Korean War comes up. So they started bringing in some in then once more. Mm. At the end of the Korean War, then they disbanded it for, uh, for good. See, they were saying at the beginning, remember that saying I said? Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, relieve a man to go afloat or something like that. Well, at the end of the war, the men all came back. They wanted their old jobs back. Exactly. <laughs> this is what this is what it comes down to. <laughs> okay, so then um, they did eventually stop using HMCS for for the transmissions. Okay, that continued until 1971. Okay, I believe. What it did, it became part of a U.S.-Canada system of identifying ships, I guess, uh, submarines. Uh, but they were looking then for Russian submarines. Okay. And it operated uh, until 71, then they got rid of it in 71. It just seems like such a short span <laughs> to me. Like they could have continued to use it, but I guess the world expands and well, there's technology a couple of things. changes. A couple of things you got to bring into consideration here. 1967, Canada unified the forces. All of a sudden, you had Navy people working with the Army, had, and they completely reorganized what they were what they were doing. The other thing too is now you had new equipment. This was becoming obsolete. Mm -hmm. It's the same as uh, the Dew Line and a couple of others they had. Uh, across uh, Canada and Alaska to identify planes coming in from Russia. It disappeared because you could only do it on the horizon. You can't go around it. So now they send planes or satellites up high to be able to identify on the other side of the mm -hmm. world. Well, it's the same thing here. We started using Aurora uh, submarine chasers who had similar equipment in the plane itself. Mm -hmm. Then you don't need to be in one yeah. location all no. the time. Which, and I'm sure, could potentially speed up the process of transmitting the message too, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, not only that, the plane was equipped with uh, anti-submarine equipment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, they could bomb them if they wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> they never did, but <laughs> they could. But they could. The threat was yeah. there. Interesting. And there are still some uh, of the buildings there because they obviously went further than the three shacks after. <laughs> after. Well, 
after the war, they expanded it up to 200. And they started, when they started bringing men back, men were all married. So they started building married student, student quarters. <laughs> now I'm going back a long time. <laughs> uh, married quarters, PMQs. And uh, this is why uh, the base expanded. So, you know, when you bring in that, now you got to have recreational facilities. you got to have other types of facilities for them, entertainment and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that's how it built up. Did many of them stay? Did they retire from there? Or? No, I, I don't know the numbers, I'm sure. There are a few because I've received emails from some of them wanting some info. Oh, I was there. I did this or something like that. And uh, Would you send me some information? But you got to remember that if you're in the armed force, especially the Navy, you may be here for six months and you may be on the B.C. coast for six months. So because they were here, uh, you know, uh doesn't mean that they stayed here after. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is in 1971, when it was uh, closed, we can't assume they were all a bunch of old men. Right. <laughs> I mean, you had 18, 19-year-olds that were in there. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to stick around here. They were still in the Navy, so they, they went where they were posted. If that is your training in the Navy, I suppose then, or in any sort of form of military, then you learn how to go on those planes and do it there, right? You, you. Actually, the planes were part of the Air Force and not the Army. <laughs> that does make sense. The Aurora, <laughs> that is. Uh, but the Navy did have a few, for a while there, helicopters that did similar work. But it's being done now, uh, and I used Aurora They've got a new one that's better than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do most of my work, my research on the Army, not the Navy or the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Yet I ended up doing the Navy in terms of Coverdale and the Air Force in terms of the uh, training that was done during the Second World War. But all the others that I've worked on are all uh, uh, Army. Army, yeah. Is there anything about your book that you wrote is the forgotten Navy base? Why do you think it's forgotten? Do you think it, because it... It was forgotten. I, to tell you the truth, I have, I've been thinking, I've been gathering more information because it keeps coming in, that I could expand it and call it HMCS Coverdale, once forgotten, now remembered. Mm. Because I don't know if you're recall or if you know we put up a big commemorative a monument Mm -hmm. and that was done two three years ago uh, no more than that 2014 okay because i was mc for that uh putting that up that happened there's been a couple of reunions i'm not saying they were held in moncton one was for sure and i've got information on that so there's a number of other things that happened that I could expand it into another book Mm -hmm. and just put what the latest things are. What has happened since, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I've got more information on what happened then (laughs) that I didn't have. (laughs) You know, like uh, the first CO was uh, Margaret Stinson. And after the war, she became a mission, uh, sorry, a minister in the Anglican Church and got quite quite high up in the in that uh, 
for a while. Interesting. And there's another one, Chief Petty Officer something, who received the uh, Order of the British Empire because she was the one, she was in charge of the group that identified the message from uh, Donitz. Wow. And she did a few other things, and they they gave her, uh, she received the uh, uh, Order of the British Empire. Do you know the name of the one that transmitted it? Did she stay in Riverview, I wonder? I can't see too many of them haven't stayed in Moncton. Because they'd have been young, too. They were young, Mm -hmm. and when they closed here, they were laid off. Let's put exactly. It that way. Yeah. Okay. So they had to find a job. And mm-hmm. I, I think a majority of them would have probably returned to where they came from. Mm-hmm. When we had the unveiling of the monument, there were two women that showed up that had been at the base. They're from the Maritimes here somewhere. I can't remember their names now, but I do have the information at the house. I feel <clears> like, I think it was Anne and Anne, wasn't it? Was it Anne Othen and Anne yeah. Connolly? Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's right. Okay, I've there's I well I read the news article on the on yeah. the unveiling. Yeah, <laughs> Anne Othen actually works for the town or worked for the town. She just retired a few years ago. Okay. Yeah, you have a, a list there of things. I know that you said you you were doing some research once I asked you to come and join me. Is there anything on there that we didn't talk about that you found really significant? Uh, let's see. Well, there's one thing is why they call them wrens that, when uh, it's W R C N S. Yes. <laughs> uh, the thing is, you can't pronounce that because there's no vowels in it. Mm-hmm. So they took the C out and put an E in there, but of course not official, and they just <laughs> called them wrens. <laughs> However, uh, during the First World War, the British had a female. Uh, in the Navy, and they called them wrens. One might wonder if you get all these women that are coming in all of a sudden, how were they trained? Uh, What they did, the Canadian government got some wrens on loan from Britain. Mm. They came down and did the training. That's how, and they did the training for about two years, and then Canada took over. I think you'd either have the ability to do it or not. Yeah, well, a lot of people were screened out very quick. Well, the other thing, too, is a while ago I said there was 22 trades. By the end of the war, there were 48 trades, although uh, some books say 39, some books say 48. <laughs> so I'm not sure which one. Somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. <laughs> but others were uh, elevator operators, uh, uh, laundress, um and you had uh, servers in, re- in uh, st- uh, kitchens, uh, uh, truck drivers. You had a number of other trades. But when you went in, you would be screened. And then they go in. And if you fail, well, they put you in another trade. That's it. The that's other good. thing, too, is I mentioned they brought in female or, or wrens from Britain because they didn't want men training them. Okay. They wanted the whole thing to be done by women. Interesting. I have heard some stories, and I don't know if it's true, and I, I doubt maybe you've heard it through rumors, but um, that the, the Wrens like to have some fun. And I did hear that there was once a parade, and they had built a submarine, 
and it is sitting at the bottom of the Petacodiac River. I did not hear that. <laughs> That's a story that I've heard, and I have been trying to get someone to, to clarify it. Yeah. And I, nobody has. <laughs> I don't know if they just don't want to mention it. <laughs> oh, I could see it. <laughs> you get a, a, be it a bunch of girls or a bunch of guys in a, in a place on a base like that. Mm-hmm. Uh because I was at one time. Uh, <laughs> you can think up of weird, very weird things that sounds like, oh, fun like hell. <laughs> Until you get older and you say, that was stupid. Yeah, why did we do that? <laughs> yeah. I guess that it was a wooden submarine that was meant for a float in a parade. And a bunch of them got this great idea that they'd go try it out. That's And this uh, could be complete nonsense. Yeah. But it does sound like I'm going it'd be to pretty funny. See if I can find something on that. <laughs> <laughs> In the fifties, Moncton was celebrating its seventy-fifth anniversary or something like that, and they had a huge parade in downtown. Mm. I got pictures of it. I'm not saying that Coverdale was in there, but there were some military floats. Right. But See if there's anything else here. Mm-hmm, please do. Of uh, in 1946, August 46, when the the uh, Wrens were disbanded, nearly 7,000 had served during the the period of time during the war. 7,000. Yeah. Wow. That's across Canada. I mm-hmm. don't mean uh, right here. And the one who won the OBE was uh, Chief Petty Officer Irene Carter. Excellent. There's an article when she died. There's a big article that you can find on the internet. Before I let you go today, let's talk a little bit because this is not your only book, and as you said, you're you're writing articles still all the time. Yeah. Um, so I have two other ones written down: um, Percy Guthrie and McLean Kilties. Yeah. And then also uh, To Kill a Battalion. Yeah. And that one is, I didn't write that whole title down, but that was on the 34th Regiment, was it? No, uh, 32nd. 32nd. Moncton Service Battalion. Okay. And the article that I just finished, which will be published in in the fall, I guess, is on the Moncton during the Second World War. And it's all got to do with the... uh, uh, Air Force Base that was here and all those soldiers that was here. Oh, the ones in Lake Burn and such. There was a saying at the time, you could, couldn't throw a brick on Main Street without hitting an airman. <laughs> well, the other thing that gets me is at school, the kids learn eventually a bit about the Second World War or wars in general, but they never learn about what New Brunswick's contribution was to this. Mm-hmm. Or Moncton's. I mean, I know Riverview was small at the time, so there wasn't that much contribution in ter- terms of the city itself. But uh, in terms of all of New Brunswick, there was a lot of contribution. Well, if you go down to the Albert County Museum, the, the two guns that are out front, Albert County men, they went, yeah. a lot of them. Things like that, we need to be proud of these things, and we need to be <clears> proud <throat> of our history, and we need to be teaching our children about our history as well. Well, you see, during the 30s, we had the Depression, and there were people starving all over the place. Mm-hmm. And men didn't have jobs, or a lot of them. And when the war came along, it allowed them to have a job and to send some money home. Mm-hmm. 
It may not have been a great amount, but there it was something that they didn't have before. So there's a lot of people, especially rural individuals, because the city individuals or towns, larger villages, there were jobs available for a number of men, but in the country there was hardly anything. That's right. And they joined, so you had a lot, like to say, a, a lot of farmers were in the army. Mm-hmm. That's something not I never just thought farmer, about. Not yeah. just farmers, but in general, as uh, people in the country that joined. Well, it created a problem during the First World War, too, because uh, the soldiers had to eat, had to have some food. They wanted to keep some of the farmers here to work, but on the other hand, the farmers wanted to go over there. <laughs> any farmer who did not want to join didn't have any problem at all. But the ones who did, they didn't necessarily encourage them that much. <laughs> Still needed to produce the food, that's right. Yeah, and well, or uh, take Minto with the uh, uh, coal mines. If you were a coal miner, you were exempt from getting into the armed forces. Really? Because you needed that coal. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, thank you for your time today. I really appreciated learning more about this, and I'm sure others will. Um, I'm kind of hopeful that some of these will end up being used in classrooms. Let's just tell people where they could pick up copies of your of your books, whether it be uh, local libraries here in Riverview. Um, you said that there's a copy of this HMCS uh, Coverdale. Those three books that mm-hmm. I mentioned are available at uh, Cover to Cover. Mm-hmm. Two of them, but not this one. Uh, not the Coverdale one, but the other two, are available at uh, on Amazon and also on uh, Lulu. Okay. A company called Lulu. Fabulous. I've been doing a lot of the publishing in uh, the New Brunswick Military History Museum newsletter. Thank you for coming all the way over town today to, to help me out. It was a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>